Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Whether you're watching this or listening to it on a podcast, which I'm very, very excited about, I'll explain a little bit more about it. But please, if you are listening to it on the podcast, subscribe, give us a cheeky five stars. It just helps get the message out, get the get the podcast to build. But I will explain to anyone who's baffled about that because it's just something I'm very excited about. We've got a very, very action-packed show today. Woo! So, um, in this era of crisis, we're generally lurching from one catastrophe to another calamity. And this week... There has been one mighty standoff involving the European Union, AstraZeneca, and the UK. What on earth is going on? I know a lot of people are extremely baffled about what's been happening. Uh, We've seen the temporary activation of Article 16, which would impose a hard border on the island of Ireland by the European Union. Now, this caused consternation, including amongst some people who would generally be considered pretty fervent supporters of the EU. It unified... Uh, Sinn Féin on the Republican side to the Democratic Unionist Party on the hardcore Unionist side up in the north of Ireland. Now, the EU have backtracked on that. But, and this is what's interesting about it, Britain has one of the worst coronavirus calamities on the face of the earth. One of the worst death tolls. The worst death rate, apart from at the moment, I believe, Slovenia and Belgium, Uh, whose populations are far smaller than ours, making a meaningful comparison pretty useless. And yet, vaccination is underway in Britain at an objectively very high speed. Now, most of that is the first dose, and the second dose, there's still a big lag there, and the second dose is absolutely critical. But in the European Union, there is a big problem with vaccination. Now, a lot of this is, and we're going to talk about this dispute, kicking off between the EU and AstraZeneca about the responsibilities the EU believes AstraZeneca has. There's a production crisis. A lot of this is confusing, as I've said. Now, I brought in today three really brilliant experts who are going to explain in layman's terms exactly what is going on. What is the nature of this crisis? What's going on with vaccination, uh, the problems in the European Union? But also Big Pharma, because I think Big Pharma, a lot of people are, maybe some illusions are being sowed in Big Pharma. So we're going to talk about that as well and the wider issues of vaccination, not just here in Britain, but elsewhere, because we're not going to be safe in Britain in any case if we have mass vaccination that's successful here. Our own future depends on mass vaccination across the world. But of course, the lives of other people in other countries is also the most critical thing. So we're going to talk about a lot of these issues. Right, enough spiel. Let's go straight into this. I'm going to introduce first our first expert, uh, who is Dr. Siva Thambisetti. Thank you so much. And I should explain, Associate Professor of Intellectual Property Law uh, at the London School of Economics. We're really honoured to have you. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Do you know what? A lot of people don't understand patents. They just don't get them. Do you want to explain? Could you explain in layman's term, what do we mean by a patent uh, and how is it working in the pharmaceutical kind of context? 
Okay, so uh, no pressure, very simple question there to start off with. Actually, it's not a simple question because there are many ways in which I can answer that. Um, a sort of formal answer would be simply to say a patent is a property right um, to exclusively make, use, sell, import, export um, what is held under that patent. So in the case of inventions in, in pharmaceuticals, it would be uh, a, the patent that gives the exclusive right to the patent holder to make, use, or sell uh, that invention. Now, this does not, this formal explanation of what a patent is does not tell us how it actually works in real terms. Uh, when we think of patents and pharmaceuticals, we tend to think of one patent for one product. So the coronavirus vaccine has one patent, but it often, in the case of pharmaceuticals, does not work in that way. Um, every successful product that goes to the market may have several, several patents on that one product. Um, and in, in the case of very successful drugs, it could be as high as, as over 100. So navigating uh, access to technology might well involve navigating hundreds of patents on a single product. Um, another way to answer the question is to say a patent gives an incentive to inventors to engage in that inventive activity and come up with the invention. Um, this is also an incomplete story because this assumes um, that, or you know, this story of one invention, one patent holder, or one inventor assumes that the patent holder was instrumental and solely instrumental in coming up with that invention. So what it might ignore is the, a lot of the collaborative effort that went into creating that invention. It might in, uh, ignore the sort of structural um, facilities that went into producing that invention. And, but most importantly, in my mind, it prioritizes individual effort, right? Um, it, it sort of valorizes this heroic inventor that individually produced this invention. The story is often much more complicated. Uh, there may be collaborative work. There may be very important inputs that have been funded by public money. And certainly in the case of uh, the vaccine, we've seen uh, uh, much of this inventive work has been funded in different countries with public sector money. Um, does that answer your initial question, Owen? I can keep going. Oh, it does. It does. I mean, just I suppose to kind of, you know, bring it into kind of, I suppose I'm devil's advocate here, but people yeah. say, look, come on, the patent incentivizes scientific yeah. advance, scientific research yeah. in the pharmaceutical industry, like it or loathe it, there needs to be incentives. This is it. So the, what is true is that this is the only incentive this industry knows, right? We've worked with this, with the patent system for several decades now. So when you say, you know, we must have patents in order to get innovation in the pharmaceutical sector, we wouldn't know any different because we've not really tried any other systems. Um, and there are some efforts now uh, to undertake open innovation. So, for instance, as Charles Buntra, professor at Oxford, is um, initiating, uh, uh, spearheading a big effort at open innovation for drug discovery, for instance. Um, Patents in pharmaceuticals tend to have a slightly different narrative because of the investment that's required for clinical testing and passing regulatory approvals, which is often an expensive process with a long pipeline. But 
often the story here is, you know, the age old story of um, uh, public cost and privatizing the profit. So many of these inventions initially start off at academic departments funded by public sector grants, funded by public monies. Um, and when it comes to the clinical testing stage, that's when it's often taken over by private uh, pharmaceutical companies. And it, it's interesting that, you know, in this whole controversy around the, the EU uh, and what's recently transpired in the last few days, the EU has come out with very interesting wording. It said, you know, vaccines are a common good. It's a public good. Uh, but there is no common good unless there are any limitations placed on how that information might be used. So if you gave a huge grant um, to AstraZeneca to produce the technology that fed into the vaccines, if you didn't have any strings attached to that investment, then AstraZeneca, by uh, putting its own self-interest forward, is doing exactly what the patent system expects it will do. So this is this what has transpired in the last few days, to my mind, is not surprising or even unprecedented because our patent system bakes self-interested behavior into the system. We rely on private initiative and um, sort of self-interest to run our innovation systems. So and that's exactly what's happened here. I mean, one question, and this question keeps coming up, Peter O'Donovan asked, do you think if the EU took more of a risk and ordered vaccines in early, it would be fine? So that there was a failure by the EU, the EU messed up basically in terms of their vaccine strategy. Yeah. Okay. So this is assuming that there is only one company that can manufacture the vaccines. Now, the reason the supply is now restricted and limited uh, goes back to, again, a fundamental principle of intellectual property law, which is that we need scarcity to create value, right? So what intellectual property rights or patents do is by granting the patent holder the exclusive right to manufacture this vaccine, you in effect create an artificial scarcity that then allows the patent holder to price his product in a certain way. Now, uh, you can... If you want, if you are respecting the intellectual property right, yes, you have to go to the patent holder. But in a humanitarian crisis like the sort we're uh, going through, it is possible for other companies to be given access to intellectual property rights and the technical know-how around manufacturing the vaccine to then immediately start producing this vaccine. So we've seen in recent, um, I think in the last 24 hours, uh, Novartis and Sanofi have said that they will step in to produce the Pfizer vaccine, which will ramp up supply. So what the EU is doing is what it always does. It's negotiating with the patent holder. But arguably, the circumstances demand that we look to other arrangements where we don't um, put IP, uh, you know, we don't give predominant importance to the intellectual property rights but find a way immediately to ramp up the supply in the marketplace. And that involves either negating or not enforcing intellectual property rights. And, and that's the nub of the uh, problem here. I mean, what the moment is happening at the World Health Organization with regards to this specific issue? Um, so the, the World Health Organization, you know, obviously, 
it's, it's about world health, uh, but it has very little control over what happens to the patents, right? So the patents are uh, governed by an international agreement called the TRIPS Agreement, which is dealt with in the WTO. Now, the WHO came up with, um, a few countries in the WHO came up with an interesting proposal to create a technology access pool where countries would pool in or, you know, their pharmaceutical companies would pool in the technology uh, required to produce vaccines. And these would then be licensed out to countries that could then produce or manufacture these vaccines. Uh, now, the technology access pool is respectful of patent rights, so it builds on existing patents, and it depends really on pharmaceutical companies providing this technical know-how out of goodwill. It's a voluntary measure. Um, at the WTO, which has uh, more, of man more of a sort of um, authority to actually change how global rules are applied, countries led by South Africa and India have come up with a very interesting proposal, which is they have demanded that there should be a waiver of intellectual property rights for the duration of the pandemic related to treatments and vaccines, uh, uh, coronavirus treatments and vaccines. There's been very little support uh, from developed countries for the IP waiver. And uh, in the next few days, they're going to be meeting again. So it'll be very interesting to see whether what's transpired in the last few days with the EU will make a difference and whether the EU will now actually support this IP waiver. Because what's become crystal clear is that the supply question is not just something that happens over there to, to the poorer countries, to the poor people, but it is very much here. It's a first world problem and the supply question needs to be sorted out. Um, uh, many people are already calling this uh, a vaccine apartheid, which is developing. Uh, it's the, the issue is on the Davos agenda of the World Economic Forum, for instance. Um, uh, but the question is whether what's happened in the last few days will change the political will uh, at the WTO for the EU uh, to change how it's uh, uh, sort of responded to this proposal for the IP waiver. So just a very direct question. Yeah. If, the international, if the intellectual property, if the know-how was made just available to anyone, would any country, Global South, Global North, just be able to start improving the vaccine supply like that? So, again, without knowing about the specifics of which company could do what, I would say almost certainly yes. Now, around this issue, there's been a lot of... Um, uh, been, there's been some uh, tired tropes, as Tahir Amin, uh, who's a well-known activist in this field, calls it, of suggesting that even if we made IP or technical know-how available, these developing countries with their poor technical expertise would not be able to manufacture the vaccine. Now, this is uh, it's patently wrong because in the past when this argument has been raised, companies have always stepped up. We have several examples of manufacturing um, taking place much sooner than many of these companies that hold the patents uh, expect or want the manufacturing to take place. So um, a very, um, an example is Tamiflu. When uh, Tamiflu, um, uh, when Gilead was, uh, Gilead was um, producing Tamiflu, it suggested that companies in India would not be able to uh, 
uh, produce it because they didn't have the scientific expertise to do this. But within a few months, um, companies, Indian companies were able to produce uh, Tamiflu and increase supply. Uh, the hepatitis B vaccine, uh, which uh, was brought down to $1 a vaccine cost um, because Shanta Biotech, uh, which is a company in India, was able to quickly produce uh, the vaccine uh, despite having been denied technology transfer to produce it. So this idea that developing countries don't have the expertise to produce these vaccines is a narrative that is pushed largely by pharmaceutical patent holders. Now, it's in everybody's interest that we identify the companies that can produce and manufacture these vaccines so that we can immediately start increasing supply, not just here, but all over the world, because this pandemic doesn't really respect national boundaries, as we've seen. Just, just very finally then, I mean, do you see a way out of the current crisis in the EU as regards vaccination, the whole standoff mm. between the EU, AstraZeneca and the UK? Do you, what are you, what, how do you, realistically, not on a kind of ideal world, but the world we actually live in, what, mm. what, do, you, what do you think? Um, so uh, you burst my bubble there, Owen. I was just going to give you the, uh, you know, what I'd like to see happen. Uh, <laughs> you can as well. You can do that as well. Maybe I, I will indulge myself there briefly and say, I think um, what the COVID, you know, the, the, the whole crisis has shown us is the structural inequality in our incentive systems. We've settled for an incentive system that produces a certain kind of innovation that's very expensive, um, simply because we're not able to experiment and look at other ways of incentivizing uh, this kind of innovation. Uh, we rely on scarcity and self-interested behavior to run our innovation systems. And we have to see this as sort of civic damage because if you're focusing on private uh, incentive and self-interested behavior, then you're giving up on altruistic behavior, this sort of notion of international solidarity or common good, for instance. Incidentally, international solidarity is used in the recent export control order that the EU put out, uh, suggesting that because of international solidarity and for humanitarian reasons, this export order would not apply to low or uh, middle income countries that are going through a humanitarian crisis. So we have to stop seeing patterns as causing a humanitarian crisis only for low and middle income countries. I would suggest that the, the whole patent system, the design of the patent system um, underplays collaborative effort. It underplays the common good. Um, it underplays uh, altruism and international solidarity. And ideally, we would start giving, you know, having less deference to these rights. After all, uh, patterns are a social construct. They're supposed to work in the interests of society. And if they're not working in the interests of society, uh, then we need to find a way to change it. Okay, coming to the real world. Uh, I think, um, I think that actually, to be honest, I think this is this, there's an excellent opportunity for the UK in a post-Brexit world um, to support the IP waiver at the WTO in a few days' time. I think this would be low-hanging fruit. Uh, the UK has said it wants to reach out beyond the EU. Uh, there is a sort of a colonial element, a commonwealth element here as well. Uh, and I think it would be excellent if the UK threw its weight behind the IP waiver at the WTO. I think that is possible. It's a very specific thing that we can do now that might start shifting this narrative. 
Uh, second, what I'd like to see is now the EU cannot take advantage of the compulsory licensing provisions because it's not a party to the TRIPS agreement, right? But it can start asking that individual member states start applying compulsory licenses. So all it would take now to sort out the supply question is for a couple of entities in the EU uh, to uh, you know, look out for a compulsory license and start manufacturing this. There will be a bit of negotiation between the patent holder and these companies, uh, but that would be something that could be done immediately. The reason it may not happen is that the EU and EU member states possibly do not want it to want it to want compulsory licenses to be seen as a solution to access to medicines and vaccine because they have resisted that story for developing countries uh, for a long time. So there are many different ways in which the solution can be found. The question is if there is going to be political will uh, to this. Um, I would say here, Owen, that you know, in the past, it, it used to be that pharmaceutical companies responded to social stigma, that they responded to negative stories in the press. Uh, but when decisions are being taken at the EU level, um, we lose that weight of the popular uh, push. So if we can feed the public imagination about what is going on with these patents, and if pressure can be put on governments, uh, that's another way in which we can start uh, insisting that we do the right thing when it comes to supply of vaccines. Thank you so much for that. So We're very lucky to have that kind of expertise. It was so very, very clear, full of clarity. I think for a lot of people who, again, very confused about what's happening, that was extremely helpful. Thank you for spending a bit of time in your Sunday coming on. Uh, Thank you you so, so much. Thank you. Um, Wow. Again, see, we've got a huge amount of expertise, still more expertise to come. Please do keep the questions coming. Uh, on Super Chat. So I've got two other fantastic guests to bring in. Come on in. Nick Dearden, who is the Director of Global Justice UK, and Esther Lynch, who is the Deputy General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation, representing, of course, workers across the European continent. Hello. How are you both? Hey. Not too bad, thanks. Happy birthday to Nick's birthday. Look at him. (laughs) Spending his his 25th birthday uh, on... On my YouTube channel, talking about Big Pharma, really appreciated. Please wait to ask to him if if if, you, if you've got a tipple available. Um, let's just get straight into it, by the way. And thank you very much, CC, both of you for for coming on. What on earth is going on with the EU's vaccination program? Because as I said, the, if you look at the British, the horror of Brit, the British experience, an absolute catastrophe in terms of the death toll, the death rate, the economic hit, and now. Of all the things, the vaccination programme going pretty well in Britain. So what is going on in the EU? Well, what I would say is that the EU strategy has a lot of merit to it. So the idea that instead of competing, instead of member states competing with each other, both for uh, access to the vaccine and for supply dates, that you would pull that together and you would not allowed to develop within the European Union the type of vaccination nationalism that this this episode has brought to the fore. So so that's the first thing to say. There is a merit uh, in having a a combined approach not based on competing between member states. The second thing that, that has merit in the EU strategy is that they've advanced purchase 2.3 
billion doses. Now, what that corresponds to is five times the population, and they've done that across six suppliers. And 400 million doses are from AstraZeneca, and that's where the, uh, the, the whole strategy is coming apart in the implementation. Because you're absolutely right, the EU, uh, the EU only has 2% of the population uh, vaccinated compared to 12% in the, in the UK. So, so where the real problems are, are in relation to the implementation of this strategy. And of course, a lot of fear, suspicion and political division uh, as a consequence of uh, the lack of transparency from AstraZeneca. What's your take, birthday boy? Sorry, Nick. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think, unfortunately, what the EU is discovering is how uh, how broken this system is in the, in the way that she was dis discussed. I mean, how have we got into a, into a situation where a major multinational corporation is deciding uh, in secret, because as Esther just said, all of these contracts are secret, which is why the EU is very suspicious about, about some of AstraZeneca's behaviour. We simply don't know. Um, but in secret, they basically decide who, who is getting the vaccine, in what order, um, and, and, and how many doses. That, that is a real problem. I mean, this is supposed to be a kind of warlike situation that we're in here. And yet we've done all of this incredible research to, 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 to bring these vaccines to fruition. Not AstraZeneca. This was an Oxford University vaccine, remember. Um, and originally they said they were going to make this a kind of proper people's vaccine, a patent-free uh, vaccine where they share the science with everybody. And AstraZeneca came in with um, the help of the Gates Foundation and suddenly it becomes patented property. And one multinational corporation now has an enormous amount of power and is creating a huge amount of suspicion. And if we'd gone about this in a different way, um, you, I would hope that we wouldn't be in this situation right now because it just isn't right that that a private company should be able to make these kind of decisions and, and unfortunately the eu's discovered this over the last week but much of the world as shiva said at the beginning has known this for really a very long time after all while we're here talking about you know who's going to get um several hundred million um uh, vaccines large parts of the world haven't even sniffed a vaccine. I mean, on the entire African continent, 21 vaccinations have taken place or had a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's, it's, it's shocking inequality. And these kind of disputes are only going to get worse if we don't take this opportunity to do something about this broken system. Because a lot of people, I mean, the way that, let's, let's just look at how the media is framing this. The media is framing this that basically Britain was castigated for not taking part in the EU scheme. A lot of you know, kind of people who've now been completely discredited, who are kind of rah, 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 Britain's cocked up, should be part of this, uh, you know, are now being ridiculed over it. And Britain took this big risk early on. Uh, the EU just bet the house on, for example, French vaccines that never came into fruition. What would you say to that? Because that is the dominant narrative which which is being spun in Britain. It is, and that's how it looks at the moment. But I think you've got to remember, it might not look like that in six to 12 months' time. I mean, we don't know how... I mean, Britain has tried to get vaccinations into people's arms as quickly as possible, and I understand that. Um, and in some ways, as you say, they've done a good job at that. However, we don't know the, the, the fact that they've left such long periods between the doses that even the manufacturers say is not a good idea. We don't know where that's going to take us. Um, I think what the EU did, as, exactly as Esther said, was to try to say, look, we are, we're a free movement block in the EU. It simply doesn't make sense to vaccinate 
part of our population in richer countries over here and leave poorer countries out of it because there will be a blow you know even even if we didn't care about the solidarity aspect there will be a blowback to our own countries from that but that's exactly what what all of us are doing by allowing this to run unchecked through the developing world solid that kind of solidarity and those ideas around universal access have never really shaped the decision making to be honest either in london or brussels but brussels got a little bit further because it was concerned about the integrity of, of and, and ensuring everybody had vaccines within within the eu block i want i want to ask you both about what the, the obviously what's happened with article 16 in the eu and i've got just a few clips just quick clicks just to set the scene uh, so the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland, Michael Mankiel, who was on Mar uh, explaining the standoff this weekend between the EU and AstraZeneca, making it clear, uh, as he did so, that act, invoking Article 15, 16, which would impose a hard border on the island of Ireland, was against the wishes of Ireland. Let's, let's listen to what he said. I think the EU has good relations with Pfizer's and with other companies. There has been a problem with AstraZeneca and the European Union Commission. Uh, I think there was shock across Europe when the original mm. uh, commitment from the company in terms of 100 million doses, it, it emerged it was not going to be realised. I suppose, uh, and so I'm that sorry caused to, a lot of tension. I'm sorry to jump in, but I suppose if the EU is not intending to halt or delay the arrival of vaccines into the UK, it's hard to see what the point of all of this was. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, the point was transparency in terms of the relationship between AstraZeneca and the EU Commission. There's a very fair point there, Andrew, which cannot be brushed aside either. Uh, the problem is the Commission took the wrong mechanism in, in, in invoking Article 16 of the protocol to deal with it. Now, the Tories here are making political hay out of that. Let's, let's listen to what Michael Gove had to say. Well, I think the European Union recognised that they made a mistake in uh, triggering Article 16, uh, which would have meant the, the, the reimposition of a border uh, on the island of Ireland. Uh, but now the European Union have stepped back, and they've stepped back following uh, uh, clear conversations that the Prime Minister has had with the European Commission President. Uh, but it should be said, uh, before the British government get too rah-rah about this, that they themselves have threatened to 
activate Article 16. Let's listen to Boris Johnson a while back. And I can, I can tell him that at the moment goods are flowing effectively and in normal volumes between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So far, no lorries have been turned back. Uh, yes, of course, there are, uh, there are teething problems. And uh, what I can say, what I can confirm to him, is that uh, if there are problems that we believe uh, are disproportionate, then we will have no hesitation in invoking Article 16. There it is, very explicitly. However, 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 that may well be the case. And a lot of uh, particularly Remainers have long said, rightly, that the British government uh, were, were playing with fire with the Northern Ireland peace process with their approach to Brexit. And that was you know, the hard Brexit in terms of, you know, the, 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 the Good Friday Agreement, which allows for frictionless movement between the North and the South, absolute central pillar of the Northern Irish peace process, which ended a conflict which killed well over 3,000 lives. Um, nonetheless, what on earth were the EU doing? Because they lost instantly any moral high ground but so do you want to just Ezra, i'll start with you could you explain to people who might not be clear what article 16 actually is but also what the hell were the eu doing they didn't even seem well they didn't consult the republic of ireland's government a member state and you'd think given article 16 relates directly to ireland they probably should have considered doing that to begin with yeah so so astrazeneca was supposed to supply 18 million doses by the end of March. And they informed the EU that they would only be uh, giving or supplying 31 million. And the reason they gave for that was because the um, was because of only having to give uh, on the uh, best uh, basis that they could. Um, and and a lot of suspicion came in as to why, why, why the non-fulfillment of the 18 million. And there was radio programs and there was discussion. And the suspicion was that the AstraZeneca was supplying the UK over and instead of the EU. And AstraZeneca's CEO fed into that by some of the comments um, that he made. So in retaliation and in response to that, the EU uh, came out with a, a, a request, a demand, uh, that there would be an authorization before there would be export of uh, the vaccination. This vaccination nationalism, which is uh, a bad idea for any country to do. Like, 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 it's, it, it's just not what you need in the time of a pandemic. And part of that was to trigger Article 16 of the protocol of the, um, uh, the, the that, 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 that guarantees the Good Friday Agreement that's attached to the EU-UK uh, trade and cooperation agreement concluded after Brexit. And what Article 16 says is that uh, the the normal provisions that apply that goods can travel, so pharmaceuticals can travel uh, uh, between the EU and the UK uh, freely on a non-tariff, non-quota basis, that they were going to uh, trigger Article 16 that says that in certain circumstances um, that are serious economic or societal uh, or public health uh, issues, that then they can then there can be a limit on the exports. 
Now, there was no need, like, like there was absolutely no necessity uh, to include Article 16 uh, in any of this question. Um, and I think quite rightly, the EU very quickly backed down and, and uh, uh, removed that threat. But I think, I think what this demonstrates is how when you have bad relationships developing between uh, the UK and the EU, uh, that, that, that that is then exploited for political gain, um, that fear comes in, suspicion comes in, and it makes it very difficult to solve a very real problem that both the UK and the EU have to solve, which is that, 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 that both customers get the supply from AstraZeneca, that they need to uh, supply uh, the um, vaccines and that we need to cooperate because it's it's not anybody's interest uh, that, that 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 people cannot get access uh, to the vaccine. What do you think, Nick, in terms of the whole Article Sixteen question? I mean, I think it was a really a really very foolish thing um, for the European Commission to do. They've obviously had a very bad week uh, last week, and it it really kind of crowned it off, didn't it? I mean, I I could hardly believe it when I saw it on Friday night. You know, given all of the campaigning that people like me have been doing over recent years to um, prevent the British government trying to put a border um, across Ireland, and and when you come out with something that kind of unites all of the parties in the north of Ireland, the Irish tear shock and the British Prime Minister, um, you know, you've done something pretty stupid, and you. You know, as Esther said, um, they rescinded that decision pretty quickly. But I think, you know, it's absolutely um, symbolic of how nasty some of these disputes are going to get. And of course, in this case, you know, it feeds on Brexit. I mean, none of this has been helped by Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and others kind of trying to claim that we're uh, that the, the whole reason that we've developed this vaccine so quickly is because of Brexit, which, of course, it's got nothing to do with. But um, both sides, I think, have um, have 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 um, increased the rhetoric over the last couple of weeks in a really unhelpful way. Um, and, 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 and hopefully they're going to stop doing that and actually think about, you know, how we can cooperate. But as Esther rightly says, there are so many problems built into the system um, that it's almost impossible to avoid these kind of disputes as long as you have countries you know, hoarding huge amounts of vaccines. I mean, let's remember the British government ha will have coming to it this year something in the order of 350 million vaccines for a population of 70 million people. We have far, far more than we need. I, of course, there is going to be a short term supply issue in terms of when they get here. But basically this year, we're going to be able to vaccinate the entire population. Um, while most countries in the world, some of them are going to have to wait until 2024 to vaccinate their entire populations. So there are real problems here built into the system, which as Shiva said at the beginning, incentivizes kind of selfishness and, and, and me first. And what we've seen over the last week, unfortunately, is a really unpleasant example of that in our own in our own country before i ask a bit more about farmers farmer stuff specifically i mean and we've got got a question from alexandra barnes about that in particular what do you think this says about how post-brexit uk relations are going to pan out it's the 31st of january uh this is the deal between britain and the eu has only just been signed off and literally at the first possible opportunity you already get article 16 it's not even signed off by the European Parliament yet. No. The European, so, 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 so the ink isn't even dry. So people say the ink, like, so the genuinely the ink isn't even dry. And there's a number of committees that um, have yet to be established that are going to work out 
all of the ins and outs of everything that's of real interest to working people, like uh, when they can uh, work, under what conditions they can work, uh, the, their qualifications, when will they be respected? Um, and, and there's so much uh, that's, that still has to be decided. And, and all of that is so much better be, being decided in an atmosphere of cooperation rather than in competition between member states built around at this, in this particular moment, this, 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 this nationalism attached to vaccines, which, which is not, um, you know, that, that, that is not what, um, uh, that, that, that's certainly not, not what working people want. What do you think, Nick? I mean, what, what, how's, how's this going to pan out? Oh, this I really... agree. It's really worrying. I mean, look, for me, the whole point of, of, of Brexit for, for Boris Johnson and those around him was to um, unleash a wave of deregulation and liberalisation in this country and to, and to empower the market even more than it already is um, over, our, over our society. And I mean, that's the whole thing with the US trade deal that, you know, we're, we're working on and moving. I mean, tomorrow they're, they're going to ask to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership to another toxic deregulatory trade deal. And so I think these disputes are going to get worse and worse because there's no question about it. This government doesn't want um, a kind of cooperative relationship um, with the rest of Europe. It's, it's looking elsewhere because by, by signing trade deals and, and, and engaging more in deepening our relationship with other parts of the world, um, that it will enable them to, to fulfill this kind of ideological project, which is all about trampling over our rights, protections and regulations and all the rest of it. And if they can dress that up in a kind of nationalistic argument, to kind of nationalistic battle, they hope that they may be able to keep enough people, enough working people in this country who are actually going to see their interests degraded um, and threatened and harmed by this government. They think they're going to be able to keep them on side by these kind of nationalistic, um, uh, this nationalistic rhetoric. It's really dangerous and, and it's really important that we all fight against it, I think. Before I ask about the global south and vaccination, um, and we've got a question from Alexandra Barnes who asks, isn't the AstraZeneca vaccine supplied at cost? Why isn't that mentioned? And why aren't other companies getting more stick for the prices they're charging? But also Peter O'Donovan does raise an important question about the French and Germans sending out misinformation about the Oxford vaccine. Now, what, what Peter's talking about there is uh, very unhelpful leaked information, supposedly from the German government to German newspapers suggesting wrongly and it's important to say wrongly because anti-vax sentiment is deadly uh that that uh, the astrazeneca vaccine was only six percent had six percent effective rate over the over the, for those over 65 the most vulnerable population of course to coronavirus and emmanuel macron the president of france publicly declared that which was astonishing behavior not least in france which has the most uh problem the biggest problem of any european country according to the research with anti-vax sentiment i, I mean so yeah I, who was the junior start is the confirmed because the published contract for astrazeneca it's the only uh, contract that that's been published is that it's on a no profit no loss basis um uh the person who who wrote in is right is right about that that's that, that's what the contract says um we know from a tweet from a, a, a health minister in europe that the cost per dose is, is slightly less than two euros um and 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 it's true um the the same tweet said that uh, other um vaccines uh, were were higher cost and the highest one being 18 euros um so um so 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 that that is true. I don't know how that 
feeds into the, the, the suspicion and fear. And the suspicion and fear being that perhaps if somebody else is paying more. Um, and certainly the first speaker we heard today uh, from the LSE, the doctor of patents there, she was very clear about how, how embedded within the thinking of the companies is that you uh, maximize uh, the profit, uh, even if this particular contract is on a, a no, no loss, no profit um, basis. In terms of, um, uh, when I opened up, I said about the benefit of mixing your um, pool of vaccines. Uh, and I think that is, that is one of the benefits of the EU strategy is to deliberately do that, is to have um, uh, different vaccines available because um, it would seem that some of them are um, more uh, effective uh, in older people, but, um, but I'm, I'm not in any way qualified to say um, anything other than if I was offered a vaccine, I personally would take it. I would be, uh, I hope I get it soon. Um, and uh, I would encourage my family, my friends to take it. There's so many workers on the front line desperate for it, like whether you're a bus driver or a, or a care assistant or a shop worker and all of them anxious to get it and can't get it. So, um, so, so, so I, 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 ha I have no time for people uh, who try to spread fear, um, whether it's prime ministers trying to spread fear or whether it's the people online who just come up with, you know, all of these um, accusations uh, which were unfounded. Just because I also I yeah. waiting for your birthday, of course. But I, just in terms of because I finally want to ask just after this about the global south. But just just on on yeah. those two points, what what your what's your thoughts? I mean, completely agree with 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 you and Peter. You know, I, I think what Macron said again on Friday just astonished me, um, and the German government too. It, it's really unhelpful. And uh, as a, what can you say? It was just a terrible week for European politics. <laughs> um, it, it, it was awful. Um, but let me take Alexandra's point about the AstraZeneca and and the, and the cost. So yes, of course, it's great that they've promised um, to to. Um, uh, distribute this cost-free um, during the pandemic. Other companies haven't and are charging quite a lot, um, like Pfizer. But let's be a bit careful. One of the problems is we don't really know how they calculate cost because everything is so secret. And what we discovered a couple of weeks ago was that, as Esther said, while your, most European countries are buying the AstraZeneca vaccine for $2 uh, um, a dose, South Africa suddenly was charged $5.25 a dose. So that's very strange. And again, we don't know why. Nobody will say why. Um, that We don't know how the tiered pricing works. Um, but there's a real problem there, that a country with no vaccines, which is desperately, uh, you know, has its own really serious outbreak of the, of, of the virus at the moment, um, cannot vaccinate its frontline health workers and is having to pay more than double um, what European countries have paid for this vaccine. Something is going seriously wrong. And again, that's the problem. We're, we've invested so much faith and trust in a, in, in a small number of multinational corporations uh, when this medicine is so essential to the recovery of all humanity um, it should be run uh, as, as a public um, resource um, with um, public investment especially from rich uh, governments but fair distribution around the world I mean that's in our own interests um, as, as much as in the interests of developing countries that currently don't have this vaccine so yes of course it's 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 positive that AstraZeneca said it's doing this but we are a little bit skeptical as to if that's the case, why 
there is this difference in price. And at the end of the day, for goodness sake, this, this was a vaccine produced with huge amounts of, of, of public money, as they all have been. I mean, I've just signed up and, and taken part this week in the Johnson & Johnson trials, right? I know that I went up to my local health clinic. It was all being run by doctors and nurses, and the NHS is putting considerable resources into this, uh, not to mention that the enormous amount of money they've got from governments for their research, not to mention the fact that all of the revenue from this um, drug this year is, is basically coming from the public purse in, 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 in a handful of massive bulk purchases. I mean, why on earth should corporations be making any money out of this? This should be a people's vaccine, and we should be able to see the science, we should be able to see the pricing structure, um, and we should be able to make decisions as a, as a global public um, that, that, so that we can we can get rid of this uh, virus or at least constrain um, its, its, its running through our societies as fast as it as fast as we can. So just on, on, on the global south, um, I just want to bring in a little clip, actually. This is uh, Jim Schneider, who's the communications director of the Progressive International. And last week, he, he said this on the BBC. Vaccine nationalism is a real threat. It's something that the WHO has has spoken about. And you know, Steve was right in one sense that you know we're not all safe until everyone is safe. But the UK and, in fact, basically all of the rich countries in the world are not doing what they should in order to make vaccines available for the whole population uh, of the of the world in in an affordable way and in a fast way. I mean, we uh, opposed the proposals from South Africa and India at the WTO to waive intellectual property restrictions which would have allowed the vaccine to be available for um, global south countries poorer countries countries that don't have the manufacturing production so, i mean we've been talking about uh, it all kicking off with with richer countries but what about the rest of the world i mean if rich countries are struggling with vaccines what the hell is going to happen with poorer countries well, absolutely. And at the moment, as I said, for most of the really low income countries, there's no hope at all they're going to they're going to be getting anywhere close to um, herd immunity status until end of 2023-2024. I mean, it, it's an absolute nightmare. And remember, many of these societies are also are also going to really struggle with their with their health systems. Um, I mean, we think it's bad enough here and we have a, you know, a reasonably well funded um, NHS. Can you imagine what it would be like if you if you didn't have a public health system at the moment? And those countries are the ones that are going to be absolutely at the end of the queue. I mean, I, as a reasonably young, uh, healthy person, I'm going to get a vaccine way before the most vulnerable people in 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 many, many countries around the world. It's, it's absolutely shocking. Um, it's, it's, it will be bad for our economy. I mean, even the International Chamber of Commerce came out this week and said it's going to cost billions and billions for the economy if we don't do this fairly. The cost in lives is massive. We've got research to show that the amount of lives that you could save if you distributed this fairly is way, way higher than if you give it all to the rich first. And at the end of the day, I mean, would we even consider giving this vaccine to the richest people in our own society first? because they have more money and they can pay for it. I mean, we wouldn't. It would be absolutely anathema. And wherever there's been suggestions of that, people have been horrified. Yet on a global basis at the moment, that's how, that's how this works. And I would also say we're not just asking for, for rich countries to give up their vaccines, although in a case like Britain, where they've, they, they've overordered many, many times what we need, I think we should begin thinking about what we're going to do with those spare vaccines. But actually, all we're asking for, all India and South Africa is asking for, is the right to share this information and to be able to manufacture these drugs without patents immediately. I mean, I just 
it, it's, it's hard to believe that a government like Britain is putting the interests of a handful of rich corporations ahead of the right of other countries to simply take and use this science and manufacture, um, and manufacture patent free immediately. I mean, what do you think as in terms of the way forward out of this absolute mess? Is it, you know, go, go for it, you know, sharing more, changing the way we do research? Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with, with, with Nick and the previous speaker that there's like, like the whole the whole way we treat access to health, access to medicine throughout the world is is one of the screaming injustices in the world. Um, and that's why it's so important for working people to, to get together, to uh, develop stronger unions and to have a more powerful voice and to and to effect change, because we can only do that by building bottom up, expecting companies uh, or the elites who go to Davos to save us all. It's it, it, it's it's naive to do that. So I think that real change um, uh, is certainly demanded by people, and that has to be the lasting legacy coming out of COVID. Um, and maybe that's another program we could or another podcast we could all come and talk about, which is which is the lasting legacy coming out of COVID, but I think all eyes will definitely be on uh, the discussion happening at the, at, at the WTO to say, well, you know, how is the world justifying stopping uh, parts, other parts of the world not getting access at all? Um, I should say that there is the COVAX uh, strategy, 190 countries signed up to it, um, but it's, it's nothing like the size, scale, and... Uh, urgency that's needed to deliver uh for the whole of the world and and finally to you nick no pressure although not finally for the show there's one very important item after this so don't go if you're watching or listening but nick i mean you know i mean in that different universe that was 2019 which ended horrifically for those of a progressive bent um and then was straight into the pandemic of course um but labor party conference back in 2019 passed specific policy on this area do you want to just explain that and maybe could we, from the rubble of 2019's uh, election defeat, how, you know, that's arguably more relevant than ever. So just explain what that policy yeah. is and leave us on an optimistic note. Well, it was, I mean, it was such a great day. It was the last day of conference um, last year and, and Corbyn came on in his speech. Jeremy Corbyn came on and announced this new policy. And it was what groups like, like, like ours have been arguing for for years, really, um, to say that actually, yes, you must, you, we must do medical research in a different way because the system is fundamentally broken. This isn't even, by the way, some kind of, you know, far left belief. I mean, we've even got, you know, there, there, there are former Tory lords like Jim O'Neill who've been saying this for years. The pharmaceutical industry just does not do the job of producing the medicines that we need and getting them to us um, in a way that, that everybody can access around the world. So what Labour said with their, with their policy that was announced at conference last year was actually we need to start setting up um, public um, research and manufacturing capacity all around the world, but obviously um, in, in, in Britain for a, if Labour had come into government first. Um, and we need to start producing stuff without patents um, and, and actually we need to help countries around the world um, when they're trying to produce stuff that's been invented here without patents and our corporations and often our governments too put a huge amount of pressure on them to prevent them being able to do that it's really dysfunctional what it means is you've got pharmaceutical companies who basically spend most of their time fighting lawsuits to protect their patents 
paying back their shareholders with absolutely massive bonuses and dividends um, and, and, and share buybacks to keep their stock high, um, doing marketing and, and all the rest of it. They, do, they spend way more on that than they do on researching things that are going to protect our health. You know, that's why we've hardly got any antibiotics um, left or we won't have in the next, in the next few decades. Um, these companies have got such a horrendous history of price gouging and profiteering. And this policy that was passed at, at Labour Party conference last year um, would have would have looked towards a very different way of doing that. And I mean, although it's really sad that we're not in a place where that's being implemented now, I, I think that, the, I mean, the only good you can draw from the last few months is precisely countries like India and South Africa going to the World Trade Organization and saying, let's suspend these really problematic trade rules that essentially hand massive monopoly over to these corporations um, and make them not fit for purpose. Um, and, and we've got so much momentum globally behind that now. I mean, almost every developing country supports this, right? It's a handful of rich countries that are standing against it. So, you know, it, to, to leave us on a positive note, we haven't been in this space for a long time, for, 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 for 20, 25 years since the anti-globalization movement, where countries were literally saying, these policies are killing us. We need to rescind um, these these trade rules um, and we're in that position now so I really encourage everybody to get involved because if this if this works the next pandemic or the next serious um, uh, uh, health crisis that we face we could have a very very different medical system um, that would actually promote and protect our health before the profits of, of international capital and big corporations. If you're watching or listening don't go because we've got one very final very very important item uh, but both of you, that was absolutely brilliant. Really appreciate it. Happy birthday, of course, to Nick. I'm sure you're going to have a wild one now. Um, <laughs> but honestly, both of you were, were were absolutely fantastic, and we were, we're very lucky to have you both on. So, Esther and also to Nick, thank you so so much, and I will speak to you very soon. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care now. Take care. Happy birthday. Um, this is really important. Don't go. Stay where you are. Move away from the get rid of me button. So. Um, the way we get rights and freedoms in this country and in every country uh, is through struggle. People fight and they are often huge cost and huge sacrifice. It's easy to pontificate. I do it all the time, as you can see, to babble about this injustice, all that. But putting your money where your mouth is and actually putting yourself, your own freedoms and your own security at risk, that's another. Now, Back in 2017, a group of very courageous activists broke into Stansted Airport to try and stop a plane which was deporting people to Africa. Now, they have just won their appeal against their convictions. They've gone through a lot. This has been about four years uh, hanging over them. Uh, the, it was, this was back in March 2017, being chartered by the Home Office. Now, we get these mass deportations of people uh, which, which, which take place under the cruel and racist system which is operated by the British state. Now, one of those very courageous Stansted 15, I'm very honoured to say, is with us today. So, Ben Smoke, come on in. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, you can't Hi. hear me, apparently, Ben. Uh, I can't actually hear you. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak, okay, I'm, hello, I'm going to do something unconventional, and Ben can't hear me, but I can hear him. So, I'm going to ask him on WhatsApp, uh, to tell us about the case, what happened in your own words? Um, so basically, 
<laughs> on the night of March the 28th, uh, 2017, I was one of 15 people who broke into uh, Stansford Airport to a remote part of the airport. Um, we locked ourselves around a Boeing 767 who uh, that was due to deport 56 or 57 people uh, later that night to Nigeria and Ghana. And we did that because we knew of at least one person on that flight, not many more, um, who was at direct risk of violence uh, and death if that deportation flight had have taken off. And we were locked around the plane for uh, somewhere between eight and 12 hours. Uh, it obviously took quite a lot of time to get us off. Uh, we were then arrested, uh, held in a police cell, and um, charged originally with aggravated trespass and criminal damage, which is exactly what you kind of would have expected at that point. Um, it then kind of transpired a couple of months later that the CPS were thinking of um, <coughs> were thinking of changing the charge to uh, a much lesser known charge under the Aviation and Maritime Security Act 1991, which is a piece of legislation that was brought in after the Lockerbie bombing, um, and. This obviously is much, much more serious. It carried with it a maximum life uh, imprisonment. And at, this, at the time, I thought it was, it was kind of a joke that it, it could never, never, ever happen. Um, cut to December the 10th, 2018. And after a 10-week trial, uh, I, along with the other 14, were found guilty um, under that legislation. Thankfully, we narrowly avoided prison in February uh, 2019 during the sentencing, and we uh, set about to appeal it because obviously, patently, it is wrong to charge uh, protesters, peaceful protesters, who were simply there to try and avoid disaster, to try and avert the death, the re-trafficking, the violence, torture of people that were due to be deported that night uh, with terror legislation. So we fought it. And uh, after a very, very long, long wait, uh, we had our appeal hearings uh, at the end of November last year. Uh, and on Friday, we found out that we were successful, that there was, uh, and I quote the Lord Chief Justice here, there was no case to answer under that legislation, which is obviously a huge vindication for us. It's a huge vindication of what we did. It's, um, you know, it very much vindicates us in what we've been saying all along, which is this was such an overblown use of legislation. It runs riot through our laws, uh, through the rights that are supposed to protect us, through um, <coughs> through proportionality, which is a core and key principle of our legal system. Um, so it's a great, great uh, kind of victory, I think, um, for us. And I'm feeling incredibly ecstatic about it. So the next question, what, tell me in broader terms how the deportation system works. So um, essentially, a deportation system works in a couple of different ways. So you've got these things called uh, charter flights, deportation charter flights, which were actually brought in in 2002 under the Blair government um, in reaction to, I don't know if you remember, but there was uh, this huge furore around immigration and illegal asylum seekers um, back in the late 90s, because in 1997, there were around 48,000 people that came to this country. In 1998, it went up to around 148,000, and it's not been below 100,000 since. And the Red Tops sort of ran with this, um, ran with this claim of illegal asylum seekers coming over here, which is 
you know, patently nonsense and also can't happen. You can't be an illegal asylum seeker. You have a right to claim asylum, uh, to, to apply for asylum in any country under the uh, UN Refugee Convention. You can be a failed asylum seeker, uh, but you can't be an illegal one. And so anyway, this was kind of the context uh, within which charter flights were brought in. And some of the, the first charter flights targeted Romani women. This was in 2003. Romani women uh, deporting them to uh, the Czech Republic, which and around that time, it was from the 1970s to around that time, they were still sterilizing Romani women to stop them uh, <coughs> having children. And so this kind of tells you everything that you need to know about the, the sordid and horrendous foundations upon which uh, our current deportation system is built. And these charter flights obviously carried on through Blair and then exploded. It was boom time. As soon as uh, the, the, um, the Conservative government got in in 2010, uh, in coalition with their Liberal Democrat partners, implemented the hostile environment, as we know, uh, and it, they just sort of went hell for level with it. And what we know is that these flights are brutal. We know that these flights are barely legal, that people on them, as is shown by the fact that there are 11 people still in the country today that were supposed to be on that flight. One of them was found to have been a victim of trafficking and has, has successfully been given an asylum claim on the back of it. Another person who has been uh, given their right to remain was here to see his son born. Another who uh, also has finally been given their right to remain is working as a nurse in the middle of the pandemic. And these are just like a few examples. And this is 11 out of the 56, 57 that were supposed to be on that night. So my math isn't great, but around 20% of just a standard charter flight. If that's you know, taken out, extrapolated across every single charter flight, how many people are being wrongfully and illegally deported under the current scheme? And I think that's probably why we were charged, that's why they pursued us so relentlessly um, with the terror legislation because to a certain extent these because these flights go from in the middle of the night from deserted parts of the airport um people don't know about them people they're not they're not kind of like key even sort of things like detention centers which obviously again they're in the middle of nowhere uh, they are purposefully not uh just sort of like around the corner but i feel like even detention centers kind of were slightly better known um and these charter flights were they were suspended um, particularly the ones to Jamaica in the aftermath of the Windrush um, scandal and the Wendy Williams Lessons Learned Review, which the government has repeatedly said it will implement all of the recommendations on, included a recommendation to stop deporting so-called foreign national offenders on these charter flights because they are so patently wrong. They are so patently not fit for purpose. They, we, they are running, running right, as I said, through fundamental rights which should be applied to everybody and everybody has the right to safety uh, to security I mean that's not even talking about the colonial legacy that we have um, so yeah that's probably quite a like, long and winding answer there's, there's so much to, to explain in terms of our deportation system but that just kind of gives you a brief overview I think just finally then what what's your hope of what about what impact your legal victory will have in terms of the struggles against deportations but more broadly for those taking part in peaceful civil disobedience? So I think in terms of our victory, I mean, I should say I've, I've sort of spent the weekend um, celebrating, feeling a little bit tender now, but um, and it is, it is a great victory. It's, it's a huge moment and I, it's, like, it's very, very surreal and novel to experience joy 
um, and relief. But it should be tempered with the fact that this might not be over. They could still come back and appeal us. They could still come back and try and put us on trial for aggravated trespass, with both of which obviously we will fight. Um, but as a wider, as a wider kind of fitting into a wider context, you know, we have seen a crackdown on protest over the last 10 years. We have seen what Priti Patel did with Extinction Rebellion, for example, where she vastly, vastly um, <coughs> overused public order uh, legislation in order to try and ban Extinction Rebellion from even meeting on the streets. Um, we've seen the way that they have demonized uh, activist lawyers um, who are simply trying to uh, implement the law, the law that they apparently hold in such high esteem uh, when it suits them. So this is a great, great victory, and I feel so good about it, but it, it absolutely can't be the end. And there are lots of other very worrying things kind of coming uh, down the pipeline in terms of new legislation brought in to, again, undermine the rights of protest and undermine the ability of us to be able to have an impact uh, in terms of like thwarting deportations. Deportations that, as I said, we know are fundamentally wrong and illegal under the, the very terms uh, which are set out in government legislation and policy. So, yeah, uh, I think the fight is far from over and I'm very, very happy to to have been part of it and to carry on. Uh, tomorrow morning, I will get up uh, and start punching in once this, this hangover abates. Um, yeah. A much-deserved hangover. Uh, you're amazing, inspirational. I hope others learn from your example, and we're very honoured that you joined us. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Take, take care, Ben. Speak soon. Uh, wow, what a show, everyone. Uh, I'm going to thank everybody, by the way, who's put in questions and supported this. Uh, this is on YouTube, for those who watched on YouTube, but I want to thank them for anyone listening on the podcast as well. Peter O'Donovan, Lawrence Coldrick, Charles Curtis, uh, Edward Jarvis, Lauren Kelly, Alexandra Bain, uh, Barnes, I do apologise, Peter O'Donovan, Lauren Kelly, Raja D, a big stalwart of the show, and Dara M. Thank you so, so much for all your support. If you're listening, I'm sorry, I should say again, please download the podcast. We're now up and running as a podcast. This show will be on the podcast, but so will the content we've been doing over the last few weeks. We're going to have unique content as well for the podcast on iTunes. Give us that cheeky five-star review that will help us build uh, the podcast if you're on youtube though please subscribe uh, and press the notifications bell so you'll get notifications whenever we do a video to help support us as we expand this as you can see we're constructing a little mini media empire which is expanding uh, on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 we've got lots of interviews uh, to come including with kahindi andrews who's a brilliant academic who's written about how empire a new book about empire it isn't dead uh, James O'Brien, uh, Peter Oborn. Uh, but as well as that, we've got a very broad range of different people who we're going to speak to in the coming days and weeks. And also we're going to do documentaries. We're going to do more discussions every Thursday at seven, Sunday at five o'clock. So join me this Thursday again at seven o'clock, unless you're listening on the podcast, in which case it will be out on Friday morning. Uh, so thank you as ever. I think we've covered a huge amount. That was very educational. I learned a lot. That's what the show's about. I mean, I'm sorry it's often so heavy. It's just the times we live in. Hopefully, things will be able we'll have some lighter, fluffier stuff uh, as in the weeks ahead, hopefully, as this nightmare eventually draws to a close. I hope you're all well, given the circumstances. You're all looking after each other. It's a big honour for you to watch or to listen as ever. Uh, thanks for your support. And thanks again for the guests. They were brilliant. Lots of love, everyone. See you soon. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 